Um, but but the most serious question here is is did y'all beat McQuaid your senior year? We beat we kicked McQuaid's butt. Uh, <laughs>
Uh, I always admire it. And there's a lot of them out there. We, don't, we often don't see them on the front page or the news, mm -hmm. uh, but they do exist. And I often say uh, we should never lose sight of the fact that the world is made up of a majority of really good, innate people. Uh, and we have to realize that it's not what we see so, so much on the news. We see just the opposite. I think sometimes people get, you know, really, uh, they, they get polarized. They get disgruntled seeing what they see. But, you know, I, I try to see the, the good people, and there's a lot of good out there. Yeah, I love that. And taking more of a positive tone during uh, times of negativity is somehow uh, it, people will, will naturally follow you. And it's probably why your positive tone that you've taken probably throughout your career um, to get you to where you are. I would say that most CEOs probably see themselves as politicians today in some, some form or another, right? Um, however, the employees typically did not elect them to be in that position, but here they are still trying to serve the best interests of the business, but also the employees at the end of the day. And that can be a challenging position. I wanted to, since you, you, you talked about leadership, let's talk about your history first. Um, I always find individuals' history um, interesting because I think we can learn, we can see ourselves in um, your shoes early in your career and see ourselves potentially in your shoes now where you are as a CEO there at the Chamber of Commerce. Um, but you worked your way up throughout the police force. What did you learn in policing that helped you to become such a well-known, trusted and, and, and uh, individual that everybody looks up to here in Rochester? I'll back up a little bit because my, my original career, I, I played basketball in college and high school. I wanted to play basketball uh, and coach basketball. Uh, and I want to I get out and teach and coach. And I was at a, I worked at a playground in Rochester one summer when uh, one of the guys I worked with was taking the police test. Um, I had no intention of taking the police test, although I had two basketball coaches who were Rochester cops when I was growing up. Um, I took it almost as a lark uh, and with this guy and I scored high enough to, I was actually uh, faced with a challenge. Do I go back to school for my senior year at a school up in New Hampshire? Uh, or do I take this job in Rochester? And I, it's a very tough decision uh, to, to make, but I decided to stay here. And from the time I started with that department, I, I've learned so much. And I, I will say policing is not like any profession. It is not a perfect profession. Uh, but my estimation, uh, I saw so many great people uh, that went into that profession, people I had a chance to work alongside and learn from. And uh, I also you know, kind of grew up in neighborhoods, uh, uh, I would say a, a pretty tough neighborhood and one that, uh, it's always had great empathy for people on the street. And from my time in school, people that had hard times, I mean, uh, guys I play ball with, uh, some went on to be very successful, some ended up in jail, some are dead. Uh, and, you know, all really good good guys, good people to hang out with, but just realize how lucky I was uh, to have great parents who had a very strong compass and uh, had really a number of very fortunate opportunities. In my, in my police career, what I first learned is unlike TV, you're not pulling your gun every night. Um, most of your work is, you know, you're trying to mediate disputes, there's family issues, helping people. It really is a public service job, not, not something like a John Wayne movie uh, you'd see. And I, I don't anyway underestimate the dangers. I actually was involved in one shootout in my career uh, as a sergeant. Uh, but one of the things that, that struck me was, you know, the people that I, I've met with, uh, I have a great deep respect for people. And I've often said, in the poorest neighborhoods of Rochester, I've met some of the greatest people ever in my life. And I, I don't ever equate someone's social stature to who they are. Uh, if I am uh, get stopped at the street by a CEO and somebody is homeless, I'll spend time with them both. Uh, and I want to respect them both. And, and I don't ever differentiate who they are. 
And it, I just had a great perspective. My mother was a former nun. I was getting another story altogether. So I, I grew up uh, in a house that, believe you me, uh, you never heard a slur. You never uh, used bad language. You were at church every Sunday. You respected people. I still call my parents friends that they're still alive by their titles, not their names. Um, but that's the way we were raised. And, and the police department at that time was no different. You know, I saw uh, some cops uh, were on a power trip, and uh, you see that with some. But that was a small minority. I just saw so many really good people. And one thing about the police profession is that people enter that profession so often to want to change the world. And I, I do think the system beats them down after a while. And I think after three, four or five years, they just, you know, they kind of give up on that. And I think you see that in a lot of professions. And it's sad because I have a deep respect for law enforcement, the dangers they face, uh, the services they provide. Uh, and, you know, sometimes there are bad things that happen. But uh, in that department, I was around a lot of great people. I learned. I took tests. I never certainly aspired to be where I was. I'm, I'm very lucky. I'll stop and answer any questions. But uh, you take civil service tests for sergeant, lieutenant, and captain. So, you know, I was uh, actually went through all those ranks. Everything above captain is appointed uh, by the chief, and uh, except for a police chief, which is appointed by the mayor. And, uh, again, it, just a very lucky I took tests like everybody else until I got to a certain point. And after captain, again, I, I think the streak of being fortunate uh, and being blessed continued to be appointed to a deputy chief in a chief's role. Awesome, Bob. I mean, you might give Paul Newman a run for his money being the coolest man on earth, Bob. Um, <laughs> but, but the most serious question here is, is did y'all beat McQuaid your senior year? We beat, we kicked McQuaid's butt. Uh, <laughs> we did. <laughs> And uh, I still see a couple of uh, colleagues that were on that team, and uh, we did, but we beat him at the right time because a few years down the road, we never would have beat McQuaid. Uh, McQuaid, uh, we, Aquinas was very tough in football, and we were pretty, you know, pretty good in basketball. We, uh, you know, we did not win the City Catholic title, but we finished pretty strong. Uh, back then, Cardinal Mooney, in my day, was the best team, and, and we were right behind Cardinal Mooney. But yeah, McQuaid. Uh, actually, we beat McQuaid every time we played them. But I'll tell you, uh, in the stands during the games with McQuaid, there was one cheer that I still laugh about. It was, hey, hey, what do you say? You're all going to work for us someday. Uh, <laughs> you know what? As an Aquinas graduate, they're probably right. Because uh, <laughs> a lot of the Quaid grads are out there, uh, CEOs running things. But uh, <laughs> it, it, it kind of showed the, uh, the good-natured uh, competition back then. It was funny. That is funny. I, I awesome. love your view when uh, you were just talking about kind of understanding, I guess, that privilege to put it, put it in, a, in a context of words is um, you, you understanding that not everybody has the same experiences, the same opportunities, and, and it is the difference of inches and miles sometimes, you know, of, of where somebody is. So just that awareness, Bob, I, I love, right? And I want to kind of, I guess, does that help you understand that uh, what's going on in the personal lives of the individuals and the employees there at the Rochester Chamber of Commerce today, but also all the member business agencies that you serve? Um, having that awareness and that understanding of how, I guess, the, the maybe the entry-level positions are living, how much better has that made you or more well-rounded as to focusing on the right things as a leader within the organization today? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, Growing up, uh, I did not grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth. I had great parents who worked very hard. We had food on the table. The youngest of three boys, I had hand-me-down clothes. I don't think I had my own clothes for years. Uh, to actually get my own. Uh, but learned that and then when I was in sports. Uh, I would say a, a good many of my friends did not look like me. Uh, I learned a lot from them. I understood their lives or challenges uh, a lot. You know, we're friends. We, we talk. 
And uh, I always felt, you know, I was very, I was grateful for what I had. A lot of the kids that I hung out with didn't have the same things that I had. And it transferred into the police department where you just, you understood people and you listen. And I've always found no matter what, uh, a police officer, elected official, a CEO, whatever you are, if you respect the people that you deal with, uh, whether they work with you, and nobody works for me, uh, we work together. I refuse to say that, you know, we work together. Uh, you know, it's, it's me. Uh, every success, every organization are the frontline people that, that make that organization go. Um, but just basic respect, understanding people, uh, trying to help them uh, get better and get, get ahead. People helped me. Our job is to help others uh, get ahead as best we can. At the chamber, one of the things we're focused on is elevating people's quality of life. We have a, a very diverse workforce. Uh, a lot of parents, a lot of single parents who are here. So we work hard to make sure we get them uh, the highest salaries we possibly can and afford to. And we're way above minimum wage. With our, our latest round, I think we're right about minimum wage at about $23 a, an hour. Uh, and we're proud of that because we provide health care. We provide other support and flexibility because a lot of our employees, they do struggle. They struggle with gas prices, food prices, uh, child care, daycare, all the things that, that we deal with. And uh, I think those making just an average entry salary today are in a much tougher position than ever before. And so our job is to really help them and support them in any way that we can. I love that. And just your understanding and awareness around those life stressors that they could be experiencing in their life and finding tangible and, and solutions to help either close those gaps or provide other opportunities. Awesome, Bob. Thank you. My kids are older today. My, I, my kids are grown, but I couldn't tell you the number of times when my wife worked at Kodak, I worked, babysitter would be sick, uh, something would happen. You know, kids are sick at school, we're scrambling. Uh, I remember the, the cost of daycare, we would shake our heads. You know, I was a civil servant. My, my wife worked at Kodak as a, a HR professional. Uh, we were never wealthy. We struggled with mortgage payments and everything else all the time. But, you know, when those things happen, you realize what, what does go. And so here, uh, and I also, I'll go back in the police department, you're kind of in a rigid uh, environment where, you know, it's all policies. I have the flexibility here to offer uh, that flexibility to people that we work with. When someone has uh, a, a serious surgery, we don't put them on paid family leave. We take care of them here. Uh, we take, you know, to me, when they work hard for us, uh, they have a crisis. Uh, loyalty is a two-way street. So we, we support them all the way. If uh, they have a, a tough time with daycare or childcare, we can work remotely or we can bring your kids to work. We, we're pet friendly. We're, we're kid friendly. We just try and ease some of the stressors that people have because they have many nowadays. And and we have a very, very low turnover here, I would say. And I have a, an outstanding team of professionals in the chamber. Very right. proud of them. And people ask me, yeah, why, do you, why, do you, why are you there? Why do you work there? I don't do anything I don't want to do. And if I wanted, not, if I wanted to be somewhere else, I'd be somewhere else. I really enjoyed this experience as much as any of my careers. I, I just think the people I get a chance to work with, the kind of services we can provide to help others has been just a, a great experience for me. So, you know, it's, it's really trying also pay forward the help that I had in my career, the way people have really helped me, supported me, mentored me. Um, you know, I think I owe other people the same things that people gave me. So I think it's a responsibility that, that we all have at, at almost every stage of our careers and lives. I love that. Dude, awesome, Bob. And I can totally see you walking the sidelines, Bob, and, and, and the hoops, man. Just, and I would love to see your recruiting tactics, to be honest, Bob. That's where I see you coming in a strong arm, man. You know, where how'd you get all these five stars? Bob Duffy's on my squad, guys. That's how we got these five stars. You heard the guy talk? What I, I was proud of when I was chief, I would ride in cars of police officers. 
I'd be involved in foot chases, running through backyards at two o'clock in the morning. Uh, I could run a little faster back then. Um, you know, I made a number of arrests as chief. I actually made one arrest as mayor, or uh, helped make a robbery arrest over on the southeast part of our city. And I, and I even said afterwards, I didn't put cuffs on anybody in a long time. It felt kind of good when I did that. A guy had held up a uh, store over in the southeast part of the city, and a police officer was chasing him at gunpoint, and had him get, and I just came up, helped him, and got back in my car and left. But oh. I, uh, I've been an action junkie my whole life, and I, I just don't think I could ever drive by something that was happening without jumping out and trying to help. And I'm a little bit older now and not quite in the same shape I was 20 or 30 years ago, but I, I still don't, don't lack the, uh, at least the ability to jump out and help in some way. Golly, that's awesome, Bob. And how, how does one become a mayor? Can you kind of walk us through that, Bob? Like, how, how do you, how does that happen? You guys will love this story. I was a police chief for many years, and, yeah. and uh, the person who I, I thought would be the next mayor coming in actually was a very good friend of mine. Uh, I had no concerns about leaving, but um, I'd run a couple of marathons. The, the first New York, New York marathon I ran was in 2004, and I'd come back on a late Sunday night, and I can remember this vividly because we were invited to a friend's house the following Wednesday. So it was mid-November 2004. And so my wife and I went to a dinner, kind of an odd time for dinner in the middle of the week, but they were friends of ours. And we went in and there were several uh, officials that a DA and uh, some attorneys, public officials that we knew that you know, we socialized with. And so we sat down at the table and uh, halfway through dinner, the host said, now we'll get to why we brought you here. And one by one, they all went around the table and said, we want you to run for mayor because the current mayor who I worked for, who I loved was retiring. Was, there was gonna be no incumbent. When they got done, I mean, I was in shock. I did tell them, my first inclination is to say, no, out of respect, I'll give it a couple days. Uh, but I just would say, I, I don't think this is gonna happen. Well, walking to my car that night, uh, my wife and I left, she had a little different take on it. She said three words. Uh, the first one was no. The third one was way. And the middle was like a, a hard consonant uh, word, we all know, uh, right in the middle. And uh, that was her response that night. And so you could tell that my wife never was a political social climber that wanted her husband to run for anything. Uh, and, you know, make a long story short, I went back. I did talk to my mayor the next day out of loyalty. I told him I was called to a dinner, asked this. And he said, I told him I, I was going to say no. He said, no, Bob, I wouldn't say no. Give it some thought. Think about it. Don't say no. Give it some time, which kind of surprised me. So that started a process. It took me a few months to decide uh, to do this. Uh, the same friends ran a poll uh, and uh, actually publicized the results of the poll, which were very favorable, which uh, put a large target on my back uh, at that time. I, when I decided to run for mayor, which I did, in March of 2005, I retired as police chief. And I, I started my campaign on April 1st. And I just made a point. I love the city. I wanted to contribute this way. I, I made a decision to do this. And from April 1st to the primary, I walked every day. Uh, my opponents were at, I think, meetings and legislative meetings and, and political committee meetings. I was out walking the streets with the people. I was every every corner of this city, uh, Park Avenue, Jefferson Avenue, Main Street, Parcells Avenue, you name it. I walked, I knocked on doors, I sat in kitchens, I sat in front steps, I went to bodegas, barbershops. I talked, I listened to people, I asked questions. Uh, and I did that for months. And I really had relationships already my whole life here, but I went out and just spent those months, eight o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock at night, probably seven days a week, uh, and just listening to people uh, and understanding. And, you know, and again, every corner. And my big things were public safety, 
education, economic development, and jobs. Those three things. And I would say in any campaign, anywhere, in most communities, those three things are still a priority. And to this day in Rochester, I would say that safety is a, a priority. Education is a priority. Uh, and, and certainly economic development and economic vitality, uh, although it's getting a whole lot better. But that was my platform. Um, I, I'll fast forward. Primary night. Worked hard all these months. Primary night, I'm at a friend's house. We're watching the returns come in. And I'm, I'm a realist. I worked hard, and I'm one that, hey, if you win, you win, you lose, you lose. You, you want to win, you're competitive. So I'm watching the returns come in. I'm down like 52 29%, 55%, 28%. The first, and that's, it could be only a couple hundred votes, but it's the first uh, groups coming in around the city. And so my wife came with the kids and I'm like, you might now want to be in here, right? So you take the kids downstairs. You don't, you don't want to see this. And I just, you know, I, I don't get stressed out. I don't get, I just, I was resolved uh, that it wasn't going to happen. 15 minutes later, I get a call uh, from a former assembly woman who unfortunately has since passed away. And she said, uh, are you sitting down? I said, uh, yep. She says, how do you feel? I said, uh, not great, but you know, I'm resolved. Well, she was Bob, you won. I'm like, what? You won. I said, no, I'm looking at the TV. No, I'm down at election headquarters. I'm watching it. Watch that TV change. Within five minutes, everything changed. And it was surreal. It just was. And uh, that night, uh, the election, uh, you know, the people I, I had a chance to bring on my team, I, I went out and I recruited some of the best talent I could find. I didn't care what party they were from. I didn't care if they supported me in my campaign or not. Uh, I was not a career politician. I got some great people on that team. I, I call it an all-star team. And uh, it was a phenomenal experience. I, I love love being mayor. Uh, I'm a big fan of Malik Evans, our current mayor. I've known Malik for a long time. Uh, and, you know, I, I know what he's going through right now, but there's no job like it. Uh, I love police chief, but, you know, mayor, you have the whole city. And uh, it's, a, it's a fabulous on-the-ground job. And uh, I love it. That's Kind of story how I got there. Very lucky, very fortunate. But I also go back to, I think I had an advantage of being on the ground in my life uh, in, in, in public service, not being behind closed doors, being accessible, as my wife would say, being accessible beyond any expectation. I couldn't go to Wegmans. I would go to Wegmans for a loaf of bread. Three hours later, I'd be home because I'd be stopped at every aisle. I would carry three by five cards in my, my pocket. I would write down problems, but I would get out. When I got to the parking lot, I would call different commissioners and say, here's a problem, here's a, because I want to make sure, I never want to be accused of not following through. Mm -hmm. And, but that's a mayor's job. That's what a mayor does. Uh, and I loved it until, you know, I was asked to run for Lieutenant Governor, which I will tell you when uh, the former governor, uh, former Governor Cuomo reached out, he was the Attorney General. Uh, I, true story, uh, I said no for the first 20 minutes. Uh, I did, uh, with all due respect, I did not want to leave my city. I did not want to leave this team. Uh, for the next 45 minutes, uh, there was you know, a lot of pressure applied. Uh, and the big thing was, first of all, uh, you could do more for your city coming to Albany, which I, I think there's some degree of truth to that. And second of all, I'm thinking, if I say no and back out, here I am, the mayor of the third largest city of New York with a bad re relationship with the governor because he was going to win the race no matter what. Um, but I decided to go with him for that, that job. And while it was not a glorious job, uh, I like running things. Being Lieutenant Governor, you have no statutory authority. You are really, you're given what the governor gives you to do. And, and a former governor was actually very good to me and giving me economic development and issues uh, that I really uh, love doing. 
But uh, after four years, I did not want to run a second term. And uh, a lot of pressure was applied to, to run a second term. But I told them after the first year, I was not going to come back. I would finish my, my term. But I wanted to come back home. And uh, this is my home. Uh, this year, I'm married, uh, heading into my 37th year of marriage, uh -huh. a marriage to a saint. I have uh, two great kids. I have two great grandkids. And, you know, life is short. And I have a lot of friends who have died young. Some have died recently uh, that, you know, you're not promised tomorrow. And I want to make sure I don't shortchange my family, which quite frankly, through my public life, probably have been shortchanged quite a bit, but my wife is rarely, if ever, complained. She's just been a, a stalwart. Wow, wow, lots lots to unpack there, and a really exciting, I mean, times. I appreciate you sharing the story of taking us through how you became mayor and kind of election night and just that overall experience, because wow. most people kind of see politics today, right? They, they Politics, like you said, they see it more as politicians instead of public service. Like I think it was originally our founding fathers would have, and, and they were supposed to be the lawyers, the farmers, and everybody else that are working out in the public and just representing all of us. And something that you said, and and, and I think that uh, it is a dying art, is listening um, and having the awareness to, to ask a question and not think about the next question out of your mouth, but actually listening to the answer or the response that you're getting back. I too have to write things down. So those three by five cards, I would have to write those things down myself, but the action, and I know it's something Tyler talks about. If you say you're going to do something, do it and if, and just show up because um, that's half the battle. Um, I wanted to kind of shift gears a little bit and, and get into uh, more specific, I, I, I the leadership side of things. Um, we're hearing a lot about uh, the challenges in the world of work today, right? Uh, a, a lot of emotional intelligence and, and things that it seems to come very naturally to you, Bob. Um, is the conversation. How do you build that trust or that, that internal trust necessary to get the honesty back from your own employees, but also your own team members and teammates um, as you surround yourself with that A-team? How do you make them comfortable with coming to you and telling you what you need to hear rather than what you may want to hear? That's a great question. Uh, easier said than done, no matter what you do. I think people always have that fear of upsetting somebody. And I'm the kind of guy, if you say I have good news and bad news, I will say, give me the bad news first. Good news is nice. I, I, let me deal with the bad news. I want to know that. You know, uh, this organization, when I came here, uh, it's not very big, 40 people. I sense there's a lot of distrust, uh, very different relationships on the floor. Um, you know, uh, one of the employees on my first or second day came to me to, to tell me how bad that my predecessor was, who happened to, happened to be a friend of mine, uh, to say the least. But... You know, right off the bat, I'm thinking anyone who comes in on your first week complaining about the previous boss kind of loses it with me. I, I, I just, uh, to me, I, I'm an old fashioned loyalty person uh, that, yes, we work with people. Sometimes they drive us crazy. Sometimes we don't agree. Um, but I happen to think the person that was there before me was a very good person. Uh, and, you know, so I, I went through and I did a lot of listening. There was a lot of fear on this floor. And, you know, over the few years we had through addition and subtraction, some people have left, brought some people on. And I would say it's about culture. It's about building trust slowly. A, uh, you can't, I, I cannot lie to people. Uh, I have to either no comment, avoid it, or just tell you what I think. Um, I, it's no, no other way around it. You have to treat people uh, as if they are as important as they really are. And, and the frontline people here are. Uh, they are important. You cannot punish somebody for disagreeing. I love debate. I mean, I like people to disagree because somewhere along the line, you know, I don't think I'm right all the time. I may have a, a way of doing things, but if somebody says, hey, why don't we do it this way? If I think it's better, I'm like, hey, let's do it. Uh, but trying to, to build it, you, you take care of people through, I think, pay and benefits and support. 
uh, you support them, uh, you help them. Uh, the most important thing is I am, you know, I, I've been in very directed leadership roles before the police department. When you are leading uh, people that carry guns, you, you can't be laissez-faire and kind of be hands-off. Really, uh, it's a lot of responsibility with that. And uh, I serve with great people, but you're pretty much on point. Uh, sometimes directing things, especially if there's a crisis, and I have no trouble. Uh, if there's a crisis, believe me, I go into a different mode and I let my mind clears up and I just can see, to me, make decisions uh, without any question. My biggest concern when I work with people, for those who could not make a decision, make, make whether it's a good one or make a decision. Don't sit there and, and punt the ball every time. And I never had trouble doing that. But here, it just was about getting people in. And I think the, the one thing I want to reinforce, talent matters. If you're, on, if you're a Buffalo Bills coach, talent matters. Josh Allen, uh, Mr. Diggs, they, to me, that team goes up with talent. But character matters as well. So getting a blend of talent and character. Uh, and I, I'm a firm believer in ethics and honesty. Our employees here created, really from the ground up, our values uh, statement. I did not want a poster for the wall that a few managers put together. But over time, I think we've evolved. I think our culture has grown dramatically. It's a great place to work. It's a fun place to work. Um, we do a lot. But I think the most important thing for a boss is that and I, I don't care whether you're young or on your you know, later part of your career, give your people credit. Let your people be out front and get credit. Uh, the worst thing is to work on a project like we've all done, give it to somebody, and your boss is up there, take credit to the board or whoever else. That's what I... I never say what I did. And I, I always make it a point to uh, trumpet what our people do uh, by name and give them credit because that's what they do. And you want to give people chances to create relationships, to grow their careers. Uh, just lost a very good teammate here, uh, Adrian Hale, who uh, I've known for years. Adrian uh, was a intern. Adrian and I grew up in the same part of the city. Uh, he was on one side of the river off Avenue D. I was off Driving Park on the other side. Uh, he was intern here. Here's a man who... Uh, a man of color went to uh, city schools, two combat tours in Afghanistan with the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, came back, went to Monroe Community College. He interned here. That's where I met him. Interned here for a couple of years, went to Yale, uh, graduated, came back and worked. Uh, just a, a great leader, man of integrity. Uh, be an opportunity for a job uh, this past year. And I hate to lose him, but he went to a company and, and the CEO actually called me. They doubled his salary. Uh, and I hate, he can't, I don't think he really was that hot on it at first, but I said, you have to take this, uh, you, you know, you're going to grow your, your family's generational wealth. You have to take it. I can't pay you that, that amount. I'd like to, but I can't, uh, take it and listen, if it doesn't work out, you have a home here. I, I'll find a spot for you in a minute. Yeah, come back. So, you know, I don't think he's going to come home for a while because he's doing pretty well where he is, but you know, I think the bottom line is, uh, you treat people that way. Now there are others who've come to me who have left. I thank them for their service. I'm not inviting them to come back because they weren't a, a fit for the culture. You, a leader has to shape a culture uh, and not just lead it, but shape it. And I, I do think the Buffalo Bills, which I love, I'm a, I'm a diehard Bills fan. When you hear them talk, it's the process, it's the culture, it's character. They pick people, not just an athletic talent, but people that will fit in, people that are going to be good teammates, people that are going to be trustworthy and be there for their team on Sunday. Well, I feel the same way in an organization. You want people who are going to work hard, be there for their team, not be on their own, not be uh, out there 
doing sell promotion, but you know, promoting the team. But you know, my job is to promote them, to help them get out there. And so I, I think that's the, probably the, one of the best ways to build an organization. And then with COVID, there's a lot of challenges right now with COVID. And for those that say everybody is going to come back to work next Monday, eight to five, I'm sorry, folks, that's not going to work because you have to know your team. You have to know who they are. And hey, I'm obviously older than uh, my teammates. Uh, I had one I just left a little while ago. He was my soulmate because he wasn't too much younger than I was. Um, but today's generation, you have to understand them and work with them. They're, they're terrific. They're super talented. Uh, they're high energy. Um, but they also, they want other things out of life. And so flexibility matters. And we provide that here. Uh, we provide flexibility. We are totally remote. We have a, a situation now. Some are in the office every day. I'm in the office now. Many of us are uh, commit, but a lot of us are not. But the job is getting done. The mission is being accomplished and things are working out. And so trying to meet people where they are and trying to make sure that, you know, you, you make the mission should be accomplished. But uh, I think you accomplish it through your people. And if you understand what they need and what they want uh, and try and work with them, I think you have a lot of success. And I think that's what we're trying. We're not perfect by any stretch, but that is what we're trying to accomplish here. Dude, Bob, just keep killing it, man. Yes. Um, you know, I love how you, you just keep mentioning that you're an action junkie. You're keeping your commitments, you know, and, and, and that's kind of what I tell Kevin that I try to do. And people think that's kind of easy, you know, and I'm like, have you tried to keep your commitments like all day for one whole day? And it's pretty tough, you know, um, but I, I just love hearing a man of your stature going through the same kind of process as, uh, you know, me and a, a few uh, like-minded folks out there, Bob. It makes me feel better about myself, to be honest. Um, when did your parents convey to you on, on how to treat people, right? Like, it seems to me that you've treated people right and listened to people right your whole life. You didn't just start one day networking, you know? To me, it like, was like Bob Duffy was just this little kid, and he's grown up in his teenage years. But even in then, those era, that era, I have a feeling you were doing it the right way. How, how did you know? Well, I was never perfect by a stretch, but you know what? I, my, my parents, God bless them, my, my mother was orphaned at the age of 11. Uh, you know, Irish immigrants, her parents came over here. She actually went into uh, a convent, became a, a nun, Sister of St. Joseph, was there, I think, for 13 years, uh, wanted to get out. Uh, a nun she worked with, uh, actually, she got out. She had a petition to the Pope at that time, as I learned later, because she never told us this when she was alive. Um, she got out, and a nun who she worked with uh, was a sister of my father, who was a World War II veteran in the Navy. He was coming out of World War II coming back to Rochester, the, my aunt, the nun, played matchmaker. Uh, they got married a year or so later. And I will tell you in my house, uh, you never heard an ethnic slur of anything. I don't care what, I mean, our neighborhood was it was a mix. But, you know, if you go back in the era of ethnic jokes, oh, if you ever had an ethnic joke in my house, you tasted dog soap. You never you never did that. I mean, I, to this day, my kids, God bless them, if they heard an ethnic slur, they, they recoil at that. Because I'm proud to say we raised our kids the same way I was raised. You raise them to respect people. You don't make fun of people. I don't care what situation they're in. No one is better than anybody else. Uh, and that's the way my parents were. They were simple. We were never, as I said before, never well. Believe me, we had a one-car family. Uh, we, I, we weren't in poverty. We were not in the upper crust, the middle class by any stretch. My parents could never afford to move out of a small house on Duff Street, off Driving Park, uh, in the 10th Ward. But I tell you what, we were rich with our family life. I had two older brothers. Um, my, my oldest brother's been an attorney for probably 40 some years. My middle brother has a, a glass business in California. Uh, we have different levels of success, what we've done. But I'll tell you what, I'm proud of, 
both my brothers deeply honest uh, on this. And, you know, I, I have to say this, uh, I am far from perfect. I can't lie. Uh, in, in public life, I'm unelectable today in New York State because if I'm running for office, I'm going to tell you what I think. And quite frankly, a lot of things that I see today uh, offend me in terms of people aren't being served. But I think when people just say things and don't mean it, it, it bothers me. And my family was that way. And it was about, and we grew up the same way with our kids. You know, skin color was like hair color and eye color. It, uh, it's, we all, we're different. We, we look different, but we're the same. Uh, and that's the way my parents raised us. That's the way we raised our kids. And I, I would only hope every family would raise their kids the same way. And what I saw it happen at that massacre in Buffalo, which to this, you know, this day, I just cannot uh, register with that. I've been around enough death in my life. I've seen death. I've been in murder scenes, comforted families that, that, that lost loved ones. To see uh, people shopping on a Saturday afternoon, grandmothers shopping in a neighborhood, being gunned down, I, I to me, what kind of hate could ever perpetuate that? And what kind of parents and family and, and friends could not identify that and stop it at some point? And I, to me, there's just there's too many too many questions answered uh, that have not been answered on that one that just bother me. And I just look at the way we were raised and we, we have responsibilities. And I think that's every parent should do that. And we This society has become so divided uh, when, you know, we are so similar in so many ways. We have different experiences, obviously. Our ancestors had different experiences, but we we have so much uh, there to pull together and help. And I think we have people often in public office and others driving us farther apart when they should be bringing us together. And I think it's one of the biggest challenges we have today because that 18 year old kid, uh, how he got radicalized, how that it was allowed to happen and how you can have mental health episodes, all these other things and still go out and buy a gun. Um, and I, I would say, before we create new laws, enforce the laws you already have and make sure you enforce them. Don't look the other way because there are a lot of laws that we just don't, don't enforce. And I think you're seeing today, just in society, a, a lack of respect for law enforcement and rules, demoralizing police. And again, uh, you know, I think the police profession has been demoralized, much like the Vietnam veterans returning from war way back when were demoralized coming back to this country. They were spat upon, cursed on, disrespected. Uh, and I think the country learned after a couple of decades that was wrong. And I think our country will learn now that what they're doing today to public safety, fix the problems, mm -hmm. uh, fix the culture of that profession, but, but don't throw it out and discard it because we need it. Yeah. And it's not all bad and it's not all broken to your point. Um, and I, I love kind of just, uh, again, your, your, your view on, on people and that everybody is equal. And, and, and that's really hard for, for some CEOs. Sometimes it's um, last week we had John Love on and he, he, he put it as I survived my success because sometimes when we find ourselves in a position of power, um, we tend to forget how we got there or why we got there. And, and we turned and say, oh, it was me. Right. And I am special and I am I'm the reason. But I haven't heard you really talk about yourself once, Bob, in that regard. And and that's really what we're starting to see today is that emotional intelligence really is just being more aware of your ego that it is there. Everybody has an ego, of course. But how do we ensure that we keep that ego in check and how do we make sure that we're all in tune with what everybody is seeing? Because I think you garner different perspectives to the same challenges or the same problems but you get to see it from different angles or different viewpoints. And I, I, everything that you've shared with us today, you can tell that that is really an important part of your development as a leader today. Um, 
I wanted to kind of go back to, um, you talked about kind of being a product of our history, right? And, and where we are today and, and, and this evolution of work. Um, and where, where are you seeing, I guess, the future of work headed? Um, obviously, the demands are changing. Uh, you're, you're probably seeing uh, that, that as far as the supply and demand, especially more specifically here in Rochester, where do you see as the future of work and where are we headed as a community and, and should we be excited here as Rochester? Because I, I think we're seeing some good things, but we also have some, some negative things that still need to be addressed to your point. I think a lot of great things are going on. Uh, we are blessed with a lot of wonderful companies, growing technology. We're an innovation hub in Rochester. We're, we're also a, a best kept secret because people don't realize what's here until they get here. And a former CEO of Kodak, Dan Karp, once told me, I believe I was mayor, he said, Bob, uh, when we recruited executive talent for Kodak, Rochester was the hardest place to get executives to come to and hardest place to get them to leave uh, once they were here. And that defines us because, you know, we're like, remember the old Hertz Avis uh, commercials? Avis had a try harder. Well, we had to try harder. But I think once you're here, and there's a, a special warmth. And I think Buffalo is the same way in Syracuse. I'm, a, I'm an upstate guy. Um, you know, these smaller, mid-sized cities, there's a, a sense of home and collegiality in many ways. I mean, I still can walk any street in this city and, and not feel unsafe and probably know people. Um, but, you know, in, in many ways, the, the work part uh, is changing. Uh, it is. I think we have to meet our workers where they are. Um, I, I think people demand more flexibility. They want to enjoy life. Uh, they don't want to be behind a desk for 12 or 16 hours. And we've all pulled, I mean, I've pulled more than 24 hour shifts in my career. Uh, I still to this day, wake up every day at three o'clock in the morning. Cause in my life, I go to bed at 11. I would never even have a beer at home at night, uh, because I knew I'd be called out in the middle of the night. And usually I was. And so I never wanted to ever even be impaired anyway. So I go to bed, probably have coffee, wake up out the door. Uh, you know, see my wife hours later, but and even to this day, three o'clock, three fifteen, I'm, I'm wide awake, and I think uh, Mark and my teammates will understand. I send emails a lot at three o'clock in the morning, so I'll wake up and I can't go back to sleep. I'm on iPad or something. Oh, I forgot about this, and and uh, I, I even say, don't ever feel a need to answer my email at three o'clock in the morning. I just I have nothing to do, so I'm doing it. Uh, but you know, I think that a CEO or leadership, and I'd like a general uh, or a leader in, a, in the army, I'm not a veteran or a police chief. You have to know your people, you have to know their capabilities and you have to work with them. Uh, and I think everything is changing today. I would say boot camp is probably changing in, in uh, the armed forces much more than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, training camp for football and, and for college sports. And I think for us, we adapt. Uh, we want to achieve our mission, but you achieve your mission through people. You don't force them, you don't coerce them, you don't scream and yell. I don't think, uh, I can't think of a time I've, other than being at a police scene or something and some crisis. I'm not a yeller. I'm not a screamer. I don't curse. Uh, if I do, it's occasional and you know I'm mad when I do that, but uh, it's very rare. But I just think that it's understanding your people and working with them. And, you know, motivation and is getting people to see their role and supporting them. I don't like telling people what to do. I like to say, here's what we have to do. You get there. Mm -hmm. And uh, you find a way. If, if somebody says, hey, Bob, I want you to do this, but do one, two, three, four, five. I'm like, I'm checking out already. Uh, <laughs> if you say, Bob, get this done, I'll do it. Uh, and I'll check back with you. But I think that, you know, you have to trust your people. You have to you, you hire talent. You hire smart people. And 
I find is, uh, is generation now, they are super smart, smart, technically hard workers, bright, you know, they're creative. I love them. I love being around them. I think they energize us, but you know what? Uh, it's, it's so true. You, if you have a project due the next morning, uh, it's, and we don't have, I'm just giving an example. Say I had a project the next morning and you have to have it done. Well, maybe my teammates, like uh, I bring a uh, Mark or Shannon in. They say, well, I can do it, but I have tickets to a concert tonight, eight o'clock. Now, if I say, nope, can't go to the concert, got to stay here, got to finish that project. Uh, I think they, they may finish it, but they'll hate it. But if I say, hey, go to concert, just if you can get it done by tomorrow morning, I'll tell you what, they'll be back at three o'clock in the morning working <laughs> on this to get it done. That's, that's you know, uh, just give people rope and, and a lead and let them really develop their own path forward. Uh, I, and I think that's what you do. And I, you know, I'm not saying I've always done this. I think I've learned a lot over the years, uh, but you, you can't attract talent and keep it unless you do that. Maybe you'll attract it, but you'll lose it very quickly. And there is organizations I see locally and otherwise when their entire top staff leaves, it's not because they all have opportunities coming up at the same time. There's something there that maybe they don't like the way it's run, and I think more often than that, it may be leadership that is focused on them and not their people. Leadership that is taking credit for what's being done versus giving it to their people. Um, and we see that a lot locally. We see it, you know, around the country. And I think leaders have to evolve. And, you know, it's to me, it's it's not about just a book. I, I've, done, I've read a lot of leadership books. I, one of my uh, concentrations at RIT was business. I had some great business professors there. But I've learned from people. I, uh, I've sat with, you know, I, I'm a lifelong learner. And I believe you can learn from a bad boss just as much as a great boss. And I've been around both in my career. And you, you learn from that. And you learn from listening to your people and, and them talk to you. When you can listen to them and they tell you what they think and, and why they left and why they're not happy. Um, but I, I think that's part of, of leadership. And, and, and this organization, we had a lot of rumors, cattiness at one point. Uh, I hate rumors. Don't talk behind someone's back. If you got something to say, say it to them. Don't don't tell me. I don't want to hear it. Uh, go tell them. Uh, and I think we pretty much we stop those things. And and you, that's how you build trust. If I were say, you know, we all, me and Tyler are talking about Kevin, and maybe uh, we all work, and maybe uh, you know Kevin is uh, on our team, and I say something to Tyler about Kevin, and but I don't say it to Kevin. And when Kevin confronts me, I'm and. Kevin's going to say, why don't you come to me first? And Kevin is never going to trust me again because I did have the guts to look him in the eye and say something. And I think that's, to me, it's it's management and leadership theory to some degree, but it's common sense and it's, it's to me, it's humanity and respect. And I go back to that issue of respect. Um, I'm still a nut for that. Uh, and, you know, the things you hear today on, on Twitter, first of all, I'm a little older my, my life uh, here, but I will tell you what, there are very few people on Twitter that would have the guts to come in and, and look me in the eye and say some things that they say. I'd welcome that. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, and I don't ever say something that people, you know, to me, I don't insult people. I don't denigrate people. I'm actually, if you follow my Twitter feed, I'm usually pretty positive. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's this uh, anonymous courage that people have that they'll use that as a platform to say things that they would never say. And I go back to the law of the streets. Would you go up to the bully on the corner and say it to him? Or would you tweet it out? Uh, I, I think that. What you, uh, if you can't say something to somebody, but you want to put it on Twitter or, or Facebook, then uh, don't say it. If you could say it to their face and, and feel good about it, then say it. And I find that there's enough, uh, you know, dirt in the world, enough negativity to me, positive. And I, it's not phony. I just believe, hey, listen, 
I'm gonna die at some point. And uh, I, when I when I land, I told my wife, I said, when I go, I'm gonna say uh, one thing. I said, you know, I've had a good run. I mean, I really feel good about things. And, and you know what? You do what you can every day. Uh, but I, it's me. It's family. It's work. It's community. And I, I think right now, even in our work, there are things I could do. I've been to more meetings, events than you could ever count uh, in my career. But I would rather have our team go to those and have them develop relationships that are going to benefit them down the road. Um, I really say, you know, I do some media stuff, but I also don't look for the media. At, you know, I'm not a photo op person. Uh, we have a lot of events. I try and go off to the side because I also think people get tired of seeing you after a while, uh, number one. <laughs> and number two, you know, give somebody else a chance. And, and I try and judge if they want to talk to me, I'll talk. Um, but I also think I have some very interesting people on my team you might want to talk to because they also have, you know, uh, great careers ahead of them, a great success. And I think those are people you might want to know. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Well, Bob, I keep hearing that good players make good coaches. Um, is this kind of your motto over there? And I have to ask, what college basketball team would you coach and who would you coach with? Who's your right-hand man over there? And what team is this in, college, in collegiate basketball? Listen, I'm a Q's man, so I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an orange guy. I, I, I played uh, junior college in Division three. I never played. I was a garbage man. Uh, you know, not a bad jump shot. I was a scrappy, skinny kid. You know, I could jump. I could certainly battle under the boards. Uh, always had sharp elbows. This nose didn't come. Uh, I wasn't born with this nose. You know, I think it's been broken at least twice. Uh, but, you know, I, I love the game. Uh, but then I, I always I played a, a college uh, uh, called Biscayne College when I was in, up in New Hampshire and uh, played against a guy named Arthur Collins. And uh, Arthur Collins uh, was a, I think, a Division three All-American at that time. Well, I played Arthur Collins. I actually had, I think, like 26 points, 14 rebounds, whatever, feeling good. Arthur Collins, who I guarded, had like 58 points in about 20. So it shows you, and I knew back then, I, I gave a big hug. I'm like, man, you are the best. Uh, <laughs> and I just knew, and he, he was drafted by the Boston Celtics. It didn't last long, but, you know, uh, I could play, but I was not at that level. Uh, but I learned so much uh, from basketball and sports. Uh, it's I think you learn about people and teammates and teamwork. But I love it. I love Q's basketball. I never met Beheim, and I understand he's not the, the warmest personality. But <laughs> coaches, college coaches, I would say uh, Mike Krzyzewski, I always had enormous respect for. Uh, I thought, you know, he, but he's one. John Wooden, I have a plaque. I'm, I actually have personally signed a plaque in my office from John Wooden uh, that a friend of mine got many, many years ago when he was alive. I, you know, an iconic coach, uh, always loved him. John Thompson, a former Georgetown coach. Oh, yeah. uh, just, I mean, these were like superstars. Um, I, I would, uh, I'd love to even be on a staff of one of those coaches and just listen and learn because I, I love the game. I still do. I love March Madness, the NBA. I wait till the playoffs come. I don't watch regular season. Uh, and, but the college March Madness, I love, I just oh, do. Yeah. I live. Yeah, for Bob, we, yeah, we, we had, had Nader Nader. Nader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say the same exact thing. We had Swen Nader on. I don't know if that name rings. Oh out yeah. You still late. Yeah. 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 So he, he was, and I forget what guest that he was, but he was on the show before and just hearing the, the stories of Wooden and the leadership and to, to Tyler's point it's Wooden wasn't doing, I mean, he was doing things certainly differently, but Swen would tell you that uh, it's, it's harder once you get to the end to start incrementally getting better. And that's what John Wooden did was we can make all these gains, but then those smaller pieces that really add up to those national championships. But yeah, um, I think I, I remember, well, actually Wooden is iconic uh, for what he did. And 
his character was impeccable. And I think it, you know, character counts. And obviously the championships he won. I could have played for Bobby Knight uh, because I, I could take verbal abuse. Uh, I can, but you know, he was tough. I like tough coaches. So, I mean, I, I would never complain about getting whacked in the head or yelled at. I just, <laughs> I did. I grew up that way. Uh, but that chair flies right across your face. Yeah. yeah you know, <laughs> but he was, he was kind of a madman, but he, he pushed people. And I'm not saying he was a great character, but uh, you know, I just, coaches depends who they are. I think you, you, you really are around good people. Coaches I had in high school and college, I always revered. They cared about the kids. And I think coaches have such an impact on young people today at all from little league up to college. And I think that's a, to me, a great profession, but I think those skills go into the workplace as well. And I think it's those translate very well in the business. So cool, Bob. And I, and, and as we're wrapping up, I just want to one say, appreciate all your comments about uh, the tragedy up in Buffalo on Saturday. I, I know a lot of people are probably trying to wrap their heads around that too, is how an 18 year old could, could have so much hate and how he could possibly drive for over three and a half hours and that conscious never kick in. Um, but it's something that you said earlier is I think us as, uh, as white ma- males uh, that typically tend to be behind the guns uh, in these mass shootings and some of these other uh, top uh, suicide rates and things like that is, is really understanding our privilege. And I think you shared that earlier is the understanding and aware that we, we are given certain uh, prior or differences uh, within society, within business, within our lives. And also being aware of that, becoming more aware of that and helping others lift them up. Um, is something that uh, it sounds like you're all about and why you're not a politician, but a, a doer. Um, so I just want to say thank you so much for all the work that you're doing here in Rochester to make this a better community, because I know you're passionate about it. I'm not from here originally, but as Tyler said, I've heard your name time and time and time again. Um, and this was this was an honor to, to sit down with you, to learn from you, to, to really hear what uh, the method behind the, the myth, if you will, um, but uh, we're really lucky to have leaders like yourself in our community. And uh, I just wanted to say I appreciate all, the, all your commentary today, but also all the things that I know that you're doing for our community as well. Oh, I appreciate it very much. I appreciate the questions and the frivolity here. One thing about privilege, I, just, I would say briefly, you know, people have to see this. It's not about giving somebody something they don't deserve, but think of it as a race. And, you know, we've run races. I've run marathons and 10Ks. If some of us are at one point, and sometimes the elite runners start first, and the other runners start way in the back. I've always been way in the back. Uh, always as far. That's kind of like how life is sometimes too. Because some people have all the abilities, but maybe just based on who they are, how they grew up, they kind of start behind. Uh, and they need more time to catch up. I think we, if we realize that. And elected officials who create more divisions uh, and more divides are wrong. We need to be, bring people together. I mean, listen, we should not be divided by race, ethnicity, religion, nothing. We, I mean, where people, I think, you know, interesting, I was thinking in the car today, uh, go back to 9-11 and how this country came together as Americans back then, 21 years ago, uh, brought, everybody came together. No one cared uh, what they looked like. Well, today, all of a sudden, that changed. And, and what happened during that time frame? Uh, and I think a lot of it is politics, bad politics. People that divide to get a vote, people that divide to get something to me, uh, don't, uh, they don't belong in office. I mean, we need people that will unite and unify and this whole thing about elected officials, you can't, one side can't work with the other. Uh, I tell people, listen, the far right and far left, I really can't stand. Yeah. Most people are in the middle. Yeah. And the majority of this country is somewhere in the middle, not agreeing on everything, but you know what? We could find some common ground. That's where this country has to go. It will be far better off. And uh, I just, I think what happened, I'm, I, 
the thick Sunday, I, mean, I, I know people from Buffalo, obviously, I've, I've had connections there. I don't live there, but I still go back to uh, somebody who would walk in a, a store, any any venue, mm-hmm. and take a human life, an innocent life, because of what they look like. Uh, and that's really what that was. And there's, to me, there's nothing more repugnant than that. And I'm not a death penalty guy, uh, but that person shouldn't see the light of day ever outside of a prison. And New York State should take a look at itself. They are turning killers loose, uh, you know, after 30, 40 years. You know what? When you take a human life, I, I'm sorry, I, I, unless it's a crime of passion where they lost their head, but to put a gun to someone's head and execute them summarily, mm-hmm. you don't deserve to ever walk outside again. Um, and for the parole boards and the governors who commute sentences, I would say sit with that victim's family first. Mm-hmm. Ask them. If the, if the victim's family says, we're okay with it, I wouldn't complain. Yeah. I would say 99% of the time, not, because their lives were changed forever. And today, everything... What's bad is good. What's good is bad. And I, I just think we have to get back to more balance and elected officials who will tell you the truth, not just go with talking points or what will get them you know, to an election. Yeah. That's well, my, my last talk of the day, but I love it. just the way same, I feel. Same can be said about the CEOs, uh, right? Oh, the same thing, the, the parallels that you're seeing. I think politicians are too out of touch with, with who they're actually there to serve. And I think CEOs are also out of touch um, with, with what their, their responsibilities and roles are. No doubt. But, uh, Bob, this was an awesome, awesome interview. I just want to say thank you again so much for your time. We know how valuable it is, and you did an incredible job. Thanks so much. Listen, you guys are a ball to be with. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I hope it cools off. And-